as much as also like it can be really tough running a business, you have got such a privileged position to be able to, if you've got a successful brand that has a platform and you have a voice, I actually find that really empowering. So yeah, it comes in swings and roundabouts and it, it is crazy how one day you can win a Tesco listing in one morning and then you'll have a shit storm with your factory in the afternoon and like you can have like a year and a day if you know what I mean. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to learn from the best, most exciting entrepreneurs. Today, I'm talking to Pip Murray, the founder of Pip and Nut, who make all sorts of nutty products. I genuinely take a spoon and go to town on their peanut butter. Just ask my wife, she finds it a little bit gross. She started the business at her kitchen table, and now you'll find Pip and Nut in most supermarkets in the UK. We find out how she did it. But today's episode is also special because I'm joined by co-founder at Secret Leaders, Rich Martell, who was also my co-host when we started this podcast. Rich is here not just for his awkward rugby bants, but because he was friends with Pip at university and was one of her early investors. Plus, you know, I like the company. We're also curious to hear what you think. Did you prefer it with Rich next to me? Let us know on social or hello at secretleaders.com. So where did Pip and Nut come from? Well, origins lie in Pip's childhood. I grew up in um, quite a big family, so I'm the youngest of four daughters, so very female family. Everyone always says my poor dad, but I think he was very lucky to have so many strong women around him. Yeah, very happy home. And I think for me, I always had, you know, I guess why it's led me to where I am now is a very strong kind of family support network. But also for me, food has been a really integral part of my, my upbringing. I can remember every single day we'd always have dinner together as a family but I think some of the stuff for me some of the seismic things that kind of shifted and kind of really reinforced I guess why I've got to where I am today is that you know things like you know my mum when she went to work she decided to give up cooking when I was 12 and when I was 12 I was told me each of me and my sisters would take one day during the week and cook for my family and so this is probably about the time of Jamie Oliver's like revolution and I got all his cookbooks out and I remember cooking every single week for my family at these very elaborate meals and I think things like that for me like food's been a really central part of my upbringing and that for me was actually one of the first kind of steps into actually what I think is something that's a slight obsession to for me right now um but yeah a really kind of supportive family generally in fact my parents are absolutely the biggest fans of the brand and every single week when they're in Sainsbury's they will face up my products in store and push all my competitors to the back of the shelves my dad was one of my first sort of investors he actually gave a loan when I was starting up the business so he's they were incredibly supportive but I think what's interesting for me is that particularly my mom my dad my my mom's a nurse or was a nurse rather than retired now my dad was a doctor in fact all my sisters work in sort of the public sector so I'm the only one that's gone to the dark side of working, you know, in the private sector. And so in some ways, it's a bit of a surprise that I'm here because it's never been something that I necessarily knew a huge amount about. Didn't really understand the world that I'm probably in right now when I was growing up and, and very much when I was at university and you know, studying, you know, I did anthropology and geography. Like Nothing really lended itself to kind of like the business brain. It was much, very much more of a creative um, education and you know me following interests rather than necessarily having like a silver bullet idea that I was going to land and become a entrepreneur so it's a funny one when you end up looking back because you start to be like well what where did the roots of what I do now where did it come from but I'd say 
food's a really big part of my upbringing. Um, you know, I'm dyslexic. So that's always, I think that tenacity that you have when you're dyslexic um, has always been part of who I am. But also having a really supportive family, I think, gives you those foundations that means that you can probably take more risks than what you would do if you didn't have that privilege. Where'd you go to uni? Because I would have assumed it was somewhere terrible if Rich was there, but... <laughs> I know, exactly. He pulled it down a little bit, but, you know, we both went to UCL, um, so in London. So, which I, you know, been in London, lived in London now 15 years, stayed ever since, went to uni. And again, it's just such a hot spot of, like, you know, food. And I think in the last 10 years of maybe even sort of longer than that, going back, it's really revolutionized I think in London you know you've got all the food trucks you've got all amazing restaurants and definitely think like having that on your doorstep is like such a source of inspiration and certainly an inspiration for me in fact when I was thinking about starting up a business for a while I, I dabbled in potentially considering starting a food truck went to like workshops on how to do it and almost went down that route before turning a corner and deciding to launch Pippin that. I only just recently watched Chef, which got recommended to me, which uh, if you're into food trucks is pretty, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, pretty motivating films. Great. I think the London point as well, spot on, because London actually had really bad reputation for food in general. And last 10 to 15 years, I mean, for lunch, for sure, I think definitely one of the best places in the whole world for a, at an affordable price, which almost doesn't seem very London. Rich, you were going to say. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think you're going to uni in London, it very much, especially UCL, I know there's a lot of like campus-based unis. UCL, for those that know it, or a bit like most London universities, it's very spread out and it doesn't have that kind of, well, there is a bit of a focus to it, but you kind of grow up and I found certainly it was like you, you're integrated very much within the wider city and you realise that London's a huge, huge place. And I don't know if you found that as well. Yeah, and I think it's always been why I loved it so much because it your know, level of independence and like in some ways you're a little bit anonymous as well. I never really bought into this idea of being on a campus uni and you all joining these clubs and stuff. Actually, I've always been quite an independent person and, and it suited my temperament, I think, being in a, in a place that was kind of allowed you to kind of be at university but not in a kind of classic sense. So you mentioned just earlier when we were talking family background, nurse, doctor, family works in the public sector, surprising and amazing that you're actually working in the private sector doing this. Life is weird in the sense of sliding doors, moments that sort of hit you and then you're like, oh, this is sort of a curious door that I'm going to open and just see what's inside. And before you know it, your curiosity has spiraled you into a life that you could super easily have never lived if you hadn't just peeked inside. What was that moment for you then? Because I suppose, like you're saying, the whole entire background, family support and everything would not really push you to here. So why peanuts? What happened? What happened? That's such a good question. And I definitely think it's like a lot, a lot of threads often go into something. You know, the idea of a light bulb moment doesn't necessarily, or at least not always exist. And I think it's like kind of iterative. It kind of builds. But I think there are a few things for me, like at the time of starting out the business and and probably a bit more of a jogger now I have to admit but back then I was doing lots of uh, marathon running for me it was something that like I was totally loved and I guess part of I guess training and when you are a runner is that you often pay quite a lot of attention to what you eat and and for me peanut butter nut butter was my absolute kind of perfect post-run treat and it's been a product which I have and I'm always standing, spooning it straight from the jar. So it was, I guess, naturally something that I, I picked up as a consumer a lot. 
But I guess then why and, and joining the dots as to like, why did I then start to leapfrog into kind of actually considering starting a business? I think for me, I had sort of back to your point around London being this big food scene. I think I was quite immersed in it as just a general consumer and things like markets for me is there are some incredible markets in London. I remember just seeing all these great brands popping up in markets, but also then also in supermarkets. And I think I remember spotting a few brands that I started to kind of do a bit more research on and kind of peel back the kind of onion on it, like brands like Innocent or Propercorn in the UK. And that sort of started to pique my interest for me, that was often looking at brands that I could see myself in. So Propercorn is a good one run by a woman called Cassandra. And I remember think, looking at her and doing a bit of research on her background thinking, actually, she's she's relatively like normal. Like I can see like how she maybe got from A to B to launching this business. Like, you know, if she can do it, I can potentially do it. So I think for me, it was a combination of seeing a product that I loved and a problem in a product that I thought I could fix. So a lot of peanut butters contain palm oil. They were all very highly processed, at least they were eight years ago. And I, as a consumer, just wanted something much more healthier, natural, better for me. And I just couldn't find anything that wasn't so highly processed. So I think there was a gap in the market that I think was sort of hot and growing and a problem that I could fix. But also, I think there was like an emergence of independent brands that were really starting to filter into mainstream supermarkets and onto kind of into my hands and thinking actually like these are really cool and then run and started by people that I can relate to and maybe this is something that I potentially do and so like with anything you start with the way you know how and for me I had no idea how supermarket products get into the store like how do you make a product at scale so I literally started it in my kitchen and I bought a blender bought some nuts and and would take my products in my well make them in the evenings and at the weekends I'd sell them at markets whilst I was still doing my day job and so I guess if I was in a tech world I'd be like that's my minimum viable product it's the you know smallest steps I could make to kind of actually get an idea that I had in my head out into a physical product and yeah it was pretty basic at the time it wasn't necessarily the brand that or business I wanted to run but it was for me I guess a stepping stone to kind of giving me confidence to actually build on on an idea that was just sort of running around in my head and I think final point on it, I think a lot of the time, once you have that idea and you kind of notice a little gap in a, in a category or you see an opportunity for a new category, maybe, is I was kind of lent on the idea of like, I guess if someone else does this, I'll get so annoyed that I'll like kick myself that I didn't give it at least a shot. But also the idea of like, what's the worst that can happen, like, especially when you're at that early stage, you're really just trying and testing and it's, it's quite le- low level. You can kind of get away with if it doesn't work, you've not really lost anything in the process. So I think that's that for me was always quite reassuring. And when you talk about um, the influences around you, right, seeing other brands come up, you mentioned Propercorn. How much do you think that, you know, Martha, um, Martha Lane Fox actually said on our show previously, you know, you cannot be what you cannot see. So how much of an influence do you think it was on you seeing this and also seeing it, you know, from other female founders that you related to? Oh, I think it's so powerful. And I think it's like as any business owner now, I think it's one of the things you can actually kind of give back is kind of get, make sure that you're being visible and, and making something that often I think in the media is seen as quite inaccessible for a lot of people. And actually, to be honest, it's a lot of hard work, a bit of grit and and a good support network that can get you to where you need to be. And yeah, I think it was really powerful. And I think when people can tell their stories, and I think the beauty of your podcast as an example is that it can really start to unpack what is quite a mysterious thing sometimes. And the idea of an entrepreneur being this 
really unicorn-esque person that's got a handful of skills that are really unique to a handful of people in the world is for me I don't think is true and I think it is a shame that a lot of what you see on the in the media is you know the likes of they have their place obviously but you know Alan Sugars or you know Richard Branson who I respect but don't necessarily relate to me as a, a woman in business as an example so yeah I think it's a really powerful thing to kind of ground it and, and normalize what is you know it's not rocket science running a business it's a lot of practical application and, and hard graft If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Take me back to what you were just saying on creating the product in the evenings and then selling it in the weekends in in market. So what were you doing? Like, what were you specifically looking for? And I guess I'm asking this question for anyone else that is has an idea about a physical product they want to make and is in that sort of zero to one point, right? Because at this point, presumably, and you kind of said it, but I'm also guessing as well between the lines, the product's probably quite average if you're just making it in a blender and can only get your hands on certain ingredients, but you have a perspective of what ethically good or bad is. So you can make conscious choices about how you're putting the product together. But most consumers, presumably at a market, are also going on taste anyway. So... You know, how did you decide, you know, for example, how to price it, what markets to go to, how many jars were you trying to make and sell? And I guess what were you really looking for as evidence that this should go from more than just, you know, Pip spending some time on weekends getting her peanut butter in some jars to some people in a market to actually, I think I want to raise some money and have a go at this because that feels like a big step. 
Yeah, I think it's all small validation points along the way, isn't it? So at that early stage, I guess you're you're just trying to get some feedback on a recipe that you, you're working on and, and kind of trialing an error really around flavors and what works. And to be honest, it is very simple and rudimentary, but I think it's maybe not so much necessarily the complete proof of concept at that stage. For me, it was more about giving myself the confidence to put myself out there and create something even if it wasn't necessarily the finished or perfect product because I think fundamentally when it comes to like having a food brand like you really only have proof or product market fit if you like once you start properly selling through supermarkets and have that like actual kind of full commercial proposition that's sort of appealing and exciting for customers and gets that returning customer as well so for me it was like more of a tangible trying to make progress when still trying to figure it out and not just being having everything so abstract but I guess it does teach you a little bit you get little bits of feedback from consumers about flavor profiles you get a sense of what sells and you can do a bit of benchmarking like you say on pricing but at that stage I say it's pretty rough and ready I guess when you start to actually think about scaling it up is like the next big step and to be honest there isn't really a bit of a middle ground there you you just have to start having some of those conversations with manufacturers and partners starting to have those conversations with investors um and really it's only until some of those unlock do you really actually have a business fundamentally but a lot of the things I think now when you think about kind of how do you create a product you know back then I you didn't have access to data you don't have access to all this data we have now to understand like what should the pricing framework be etc so for me it's about just trying to immerse yourself as much as you can be that going into stores going into trade events speaking to every kind of brand who might be like-minded and be willing to kind of share their perspectives on what it is that you're doing and it's like that learning process that you have in that kind of startup phase which is so valuable and and I guess all of these like small actions build into what is eventually your kind of finished products but the step from being at a market store to finding a manufacturer and scaling your production to enable yourself to actually get to market properly is is quite a big jump and you just ultimately have to put yourself out there but I do remember some specific like you know I was 24 at the time when I was starting out the business so very fresh and green and I remember sending out emails to manufacturers really with not a clue in the world what the word you know MOQ like I have no idea what scale do factories work on like what is even appealing I didn't even really understand like how this world worked and it's a very traditional world the world of manufacturing not a huge amount of diversity so when you walk in you feel in it's in the very first instance you do feel really quite silly in lots of ways and I remember just got endless amounts of no's from factories saying that they couldn't work with us the volumes are too small or the products too complicated except well they just didn't want to work with somebody that was so inexperienced and I think through having so many of those rejections and I think it's similar when you raise money like you eventually get to grips of what is almost your proposition and you get really good at elevator pitching and you get really good at selling the dream in a way that is believable and it's a weird thing when you start in an industry where you've never had any experience in is that you go from not understanding anything to suddenly being very fluent in this language that is you know I think every sector has that kind of level of acronyms and it's the only way of getting through that kind of pain point is to just keep putting yourself out there in really awkward uncomfortable situations so yeah landing in industrial states, estates in the Netherlands, I think, is where I went when I was looking for a factory and just rocking up at some factories to see whether they could make the product is a really weird and you, know, you have to be quite, I think, 
brave I think to just throw yourself into that without any other kind of experience to kind of support you in that but how, how did you find it like as in how did you find that factory and I'm asking I guess because you know did you google it did you go to trade events and like let me give you a bit of insight why I'm asking when we when we were starting heights this time around and obviously my, my co-founder Joel and I had been in tech previously and built up a bit of a community but we actually didn't know anyone really in this space and no one could help us and we just did not know how to make a product that we actually wanted to and actually the way that we ended up finding stuff was we, we found an event at, at the excel to go to and then we just like spoke to everyone at the excel and started connecting some dots and following up with everyone and you know googling this stuff we found to be actually super difficult because it's a bit of a false market in the sense of like who rises to the top, the person who's the best at SEO, not necessarily the people with the best product. So we actually surprisingly found the most traditional way of doing stuff, which felt so backwards to a couple of guys in tech, going to the Excel to meet manufacturers and suppliers was the practical way forward for us that made a big impact. What about yourself? Yeah, really similar. And it, like I said, it's old school and they don't advertise themselves because a lot of the time, like I said, they actually don't need to because they've, you know if you're in the know you should know sort of thing um and also when you're a startup like you say you're pretty pretty hard work but you know a similar route to you I did a lot of trade events I one of the best things I found though when trying to find a factory was you know if one said no ask them do you know anyone else that that could do it and they'll kind of you'll kind of bounce onto the next person and if a no is a no then you can always kind of look at something I mean ask them for a recommendation and get to hopefully a yes at some point or another so which is exactly how I ended up landing on the the partner that we went ended up working with so I think at that stage it's so much on that gut feel of how you what kind of rapport you have with the MD or factory owner and you know there's a huge amount of trust involved with it all of it um and it really comes down to like do they have the technical expertise but also do they get it what it is that you're trying to make and are they willing to support you as a small brand because you know if they they aren't willing then it's just not going to work it's going to really hold you back in the long run rich i feel like i uh, you were going to ask a question or, or contribute go on yeah, 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 no worries. I, I was going to say, at what point did you feel that you could actually quit your job? And you kind of touched on it before about your dad lending you some initial, I think loaning you some money. And I guess, how did you feel at that point in terms of taking money off your parents? And in terms of obviously there's risks associated to that. Did you feel you were like, you had the ultimate conviction that you're going to make this work? Did you have a conversation? Was he kind of like, you know, I understand I might not get this back ever again. Like, what, how did that kind of conversation go? And then, because I'm sure that's that's a lot how a lot of people will be wanting to raise their first money. Dan, you got your hand up. Can I build on this, actually? Um, because we have a fellow investor with us right here in the form of Rich Martel. So now <laughs> we can literally talk about friends and family and the different kind of quantums. Yes, yeah, a very, 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 very small investor. Yeah, sure. Actually, it's funny because as as I was thinking of that question, I just searched Pip's email address in my inbox just to see. I'm trying to look back at the emails, and I've got Pip's very, very first investor update letter oh, from no. December the fifteenth, two thousand and fourteen. It's quite, it's quite good to look back at where you're talking about squeeze packs and things like that, oh, then, which you don't, gosh, which you yeah. don't do anymore, do you? No, God, that is pulling out the archives. That is hilarious. So, so let's talk about friends and family rounds. Like, how do you decide how much you wanted or needed? How much did you raise? How many friends and family could you go to for it? How does it feel as well to do that? And then final question on that, did you ever pay your dad back the loan? 
Yeah, the, the loan's a funny story, but um, in, in terms of friends and family around, you know, initially I, I did actually try and, and raise the capital through an angel investor. So I, I did a kind of pre-revenue round where I was looking to raise about 100, 150K. So not, not a massive round, but just enough to get me out the door with the first production and get us going. And I found it really difficult. Uh, I guess context setting here is, you know, 24, 25 year old, never really done this before, like product hadn't got into any actual stores yet it maybe had a listing confirmed with Selfridges but it wasn't really at a stage where actually there was kind of a proper proof of concept you know I was very fresh to this this world and I pitched to what felt like hundreds of different investors and some might you know do that classic thing which they drag out the kind of process and you might get meeting after meeting but it never really actually like give you the the final check I got so fed up that I was like, you know what, I'll just I'll just raise it through crowdfunding. So I ended up turning to CrowdCube to do my first fundraise because it was just speed, but also it meant I could like lock in people that maybe I'd who was maybe willing to take a smaller risk and put a bit of money in, but nothing that really was seismic that would be putting it all on them basically. So crowdfunding for me at that stage was brilliant also as a product-based business you know it's actually something that we're even considering now doing again because it's such a great one because you pull in like like you say your friends and your family um, but you also pull in like a swathe of people who are like then become brand loyalists and it can be a great brand building exercise but so for me actually it was great because it took the pressure off in lots of ways and necessarily having to do a really kind of formal friends and family round or or taking too much money from a, somebody that, you know, a, a family friend or something that I, you know, might feel more pressure and actually it kind of dispersed it across a group of people where kind of I could then keep updated and not be all placed on one person. Um, and that worked really well. Um, but with the loan, and I think this sort of tells you a little bit about like probably my background as well, is that my dad, when he gave me that initial startup loan, he not only wrote up a contract for it, but he put interest on on the loan so that I not only had to pay back, not only had to pay back the interest, but also the loan itself um, and terms. And I did pay it back, which I was pleased about. But he did actually say to me afterwards that he never expected to see it, see it come back to him. So fair play to him. He still went through with it. If he was really smart, he should have written a, a conversion clause to convert that into equity because it probably were. I'll let him know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So as I understand it, we've got some crowdfunded friends and family round money we've got you know going to visit warehouses in you know the netherlands trying to understand how to get this product off the ground take us through the first year i've got this vision in my head of you just you know covered in peanut butter all over because it's just like a blender's exploded an industrial size blender's exploded or anything any mishaps any like crazy stories in like the first year of not really understanding what you're doing obviously and also again personal lesson that I'm learning along my journey of doing this, you know, managing supply and demand, like understanding how to manage cash flow, usually quite large suppliers um, who want certainly quantum is way beyond a startup's ability. Otherwise they give you like absurd terms or, or delays in shipments, et cetera, et cetera. How do you find managing and learning these lessons as well as a sole founder without like a shoulder to cry on? At least I've got that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the first year, I think we were fortunate that actually sales naturally built. And in some ways, I some of the successes that we had in our first year, I totally took for granted. Like when we got our first supermarket listing in Sainsbury's, it was sort of about nine months into running the business. And they put us in like four products into about 500 stores each. 
Um, and then within six months of that listing, they then quadrupled our distribution in that one retailer. And I remember just calling up my investor at the time and just said, oh, just by the way, just quick update, this has happened. Didn't even really celebrate the win because I was like, I just thought that was kind of relatively normal. But in, now looking back at it, I realized just what like a landfill that was or landfall that was because it was such an unusual experience. So like for me, it wasn't to your point necessarily the sales kind of flowed and and obviously there was graft involved in it but it it wasn't the problem that it didn't sell but definitely there was like the hiccups around supply chains and Sainsbury's was a classic one where we had a factory that we were expecting us to pay up front and Sainsbury's would pay us 60 days later and like you don't have to be a genius to work out that that's going to be a real like tight spot when you end up having to sell in and you know send into their depots like truckfuls of product without necessarily having the payment terms or cash flows to really allow for it and I, I do remember having to call up several investors who I had to ask for a short-term loan to cover the bridge over that window of time when we were selling into Sainsbury's and when we placed and purchased that first stock that went into that first major supermarket listing the bank account was completely drained I've never seen it so empty and it is an incredibly like uncomfortable position to sit in because you know that the growth is great and it's exactly what you want to be achieving in your first year but at the time it is so scary to see your yourself so on that and my FD now would probably have a heart attack even hearing about that story and I think the second thing that I remember being really challenging I think this was like a lesson that you kind of get used to over the over running a business but managing like all the moving parts of your supply chain I think is really challenging so you know in our first year uh, we buy obviously lots of almonds from California and there was a huge drought right towards the end of the first year and the price just went through the roof to the point where we were making negative profit on on all of our, that product range. And it was the first time I'd like experiencing fluctuations in like commodities and FX. And again, something that I'd not necessarily had a huge amount of experience on. And I wasn't booking out far enough in front to not feel like the exposure on it. And I remember groveling to my factory uh, to ask them to like reduce their cost price to enable us to continue to make at least enough money to keep these product ranges in, in stock. So and that was just one example. And, you know, come Brexit, the following year was another brutal moment where, you know, pound to euro just plummeted and cost price went up by 30% on our supply chain. And these sorts of things, I think, as you get more and more experience and ultimately get more experienced people in the business, you start to be able to ride them out easier. And also you just realize that there are just bumps on the road and you just need to be able to hedge better and and really plan and forward plan better but I think in that first year two years when you know I wasn't that experienced in running and operations and you just you're really exposed and you react also quite a lot to things that maybe aren't necessarily big problems but there are also some that are but yeah I think that's for me was always like a big challenge you know the, the brand and marketing the sales side of things yeah you know even sort of raising money I've been pretty like it sort of naturally lent itself to me but actually some of that more technical stuff which is just technical uh, requires those kind of people that can bring in that expertise into the business and, and sort of streamline it um but yeah some of those painful moments in that first couple of years it's always down to cash flow because it's always tight and that's the challenge with a product-based business is that you've got inventory that you've got to be able to manage and you've got payment terms that you're juggling with retailers that don't pay for ages and then uh, factories that don't want to, you know, want the payment up front. And it's a constant push pull. So you're eight years in now. And I think what's really interesting about speaking to people in um, not really just CPG, but like just physical products in general is, 
we've all heard of the uh, eighth wonder of the world of compound growth, but compound growth usually in physical products tends to be more like, oh, in year seven, eight, nine, and 10, we started to see the fruits of the first seven years worth of labor, which obviously, you know, when you compare to guests on secret leaders who might have had that moment in year two, three, and four, because they're in tech, you can feel quite jealous of. How do you, like, how do you reflect on your journey with, with regards to that? Like, where would you say that you are, like, if you were to zoom out of where you imagine the brand is going and your ambitions for it, like, are you starting to see some payout of like signs of compound growth or is that every day still like a bit of a linear struggle? I think it's a really good point around how you build a brand, because I guess, I mean, every, you know, whether you're in tech or food and drink, it's still a brand that you're building. But I definitely think that because of the way you build distribution and like you're, you know, reliant on like a handful of like big retailers to like make or break your year and your distribution your both your breadth on shelf, but your depth in store will gradually grow. You're never given really ever just like a massive amount of space, but you constantly have to prove your your worth on shelf and provide data that demonstrates it. And retailers will slowly but surely give you more space. And I think the second point is you understand your product range better and you understand what your consumer wants. We're in you know, Tesco as, a, as an example, but when we first launched into Tesco, we had all the wrong pricing structure, the wrong product formats, the wrong product range. We didn't have the budget to support the brand awareness and activity that we needed to do to drive sales in Tesco. And we ended up coming out of it and, and needing to like reevaluate our whole structure within our product range, but also then really understand like what did we need to do to make sure, which we've recently just done, gone back into Tesco with a much stronger proposition that we know actually is tried and tested across the market that we believe will will make sure that we win within that sort of number one retailer in the UK. So I guess it's like lessons learned because obviously you can pay for data to try and inform and, and reduce the risk around things not working but ultimately sometimes it is a case of needing to try things and then learn from it and go again and I think the 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 final point I'll make I guess is on brand building um I think it takes a really long time to build a really great brand and it's just not done overnight because it's kind of layers and layers and layers of activity that you're doing to help tell the story and ultimately as your brand grows and expands the brand world around it, it also expands and I think only with scale do you start to be able to do bigger bits of activation that starts to really amplify your brand both within you know our core kind of London but also nationally as well and I just it fundamentally takes time and it's interesting because some of the stuff that we've done in like the first couple of years still gets referenced by consumers every so often they'll be like I just I first spotted you at that Nike event where you did a toast bar and it's like that was six years ago but some of those things still layer upon layer layers of, of kind of brand building. So I think it's, there is unfortunately no silver bullet when it comes to building kind of a great brand. I think it requires continual investment in stuff that doesn't necessarily, compared to say a tech brand, you can't necessarily see 100% always the ROI on say a big ATL campaign, but you know, it's, you've got to do it in order to slowly build that brand. You touched on um, some of the listings that you've you've got, and I'm sure a lot of people that's that's the primary place they might see you now. Can you just talk us through like the basic process of how you get your product listed? And it's taken you 
a long time, I think, to get coverage across all the kind of major retailers. But you mentioned, obviously, I think the first investor email that I was just looking at mentioned Selfridges. You were stocking in Selfridges. And then you said Sainsbury's were the first one. How do you actually approach that? Like, is that something you use consultants for? Is that the kind of thing that you do all in-house? Um, and and is that something you had to educate yourself on before going out and, and doing it? And you've probably got some lessons along the way about the best approach to deal with these big retailers. Yeah, I'm a big believer that you need to constantly prove your case in in the small customers first to then have a really great sell to take to like the bigger retailers. I know brands sometimes do launch straight into the likes of Sainsbury's or Tesco or Asda, but I think you've got to be able to kind of, if you're, if you're a very new brand, I think first it's really important to ensure that you've got an established kind of foundation of really premium iconic stores because you can't really go backwards once you're in Asda you're not going to suddenly get a listing with Selfridges or Harrods or whatever so you have to make sure that you've got that solid foundation and we actually in our first year used our, a lot of our distribution as marketing when we didn't have any marketing budget we would make sure we we're in every hip gym in any place that is remotely cool we would ensure that we had some sort of like visibility and use that to build our brands and create hype and create a momentum because I think that's what you're selling in the first kind of pitches when you've got no data to prove whether or not your product's going to sell in Sainsbury's you have to like make it so desirable and exciting partly because that's what it is is that the the buyer just doesn't want to lose the opportunity or the window to be able to kind of launch you into the retailer so create proof points as much as you possibly can and try and get nuggets of data where you can whether that's rough and ready things like number one selling brand in Whole Foods has quite a lot of weight with even say a Sainsbury's if you're an up up and coming business and up and coming brand so that I think is really really helpful but I think when it comes to Sainsbury's like bigger retailers um, and how do you get their kind of foot in the door and actually get the kind of conversation going with them I think you as the founder of Play carry a huge amount of weight Um, and I think I believe you should never work with kind of consultants to get that those conversations you should be maybe getting the contacts from people that you know so ask around like as long as you're not asking someone that's in your category like they will share a buyer's name for you to then email and approach and I think even now seven years in I will still sometimes do the first email to some of the buyers so that we get the conversation I think it's what makes you different versus a Unilever or like a Cadbury's or Nestle is that you know they're just talking to an account manager who probably cares about product and brand that they're working on but doesn't it's not their life and soul and I think that is really exciting for you know a buyer to have that conversation it breaks up their day which is filled with lots of other big corporate it's kind of all you've really got at that stage you've got that differentiated because you're an independent person that's you know got a passion and and a a purpose or a problem you're trying to solve so leverage it as much as you can it probably helps that your name's on the uh, on the jars as well i think that's it that's also part of it i've um I screwed myself over with that one it means i can never i've always got to be in the room but um it, it is powerful not as bad as joe malone um who was on the show and not obviously having joe. sold her name actually have to refer to her as joe malone cbe otherwise she and we can get sued I'm not sure what she would do if she didn't have a CBE in that instance. I know. <laughs> would she just have to go to Joanne? Yeah, yes, Rebrand. Yeah, <laughs> Coming towards the end of the episode, sadly, because you've got a big brand to run and you don't make that happen just by giving us your time on podcasts, sadly. What about you as a person? 
So what have you personally struggled with as a leader in your journey and reflecting what do you think is like the like personal development point that you're proudest of based on feedback you might have received about development areas you weren't quite there with at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the thing that I'm, one of the sort of bits of feedback I, I get or have got recently is around, I guess, weirdly like letting go and giving space to, you know, particularly my senior leadership team who are brilliant and experienced and know what they're doing. And I think often this is most, the most amount of attention often comes within brand. Like I think you can, you know, where you're very close to kind of like the, everything about the kind of look and feel and touch of it. And obviously my name's in it. So you're very sensitive to it, but you have to start giving space for other people to have ideas and that you don't have all the answers. Of course, you're like, shouldn't be so arrogant to think that you know everything and that your decision is the final say. So I think that has been certainly like, for me, a challenge as the business has grown and, and my role has changed within it, that you end up having to let go of a lot of the things that you actually really enjoy doing as well and realise that actually that you don't have impact by picking apart a social media post, but you've got to like let things go. So I think I think that's been my sort of biggest kind of coaching area that I focus quite a lot of time on. And I think I'm getting better at it. And I think it's a constant thing where I have to every so often this sort of thing normally comes out most when I'm sort of under pressure or when I'm stressed, I'll start to kind of maybe be a bit more kind of a, not erratic, but will poke and pick at things which actually aren't the big picture issue. So I think just being conscious and aware that you have a tendency to do that is kind of a helpful thing. And having those kind of open and frank conversations with your team, explaining why it is that maybe you might sometimes encroach a little bit more and setting up, I guess, a bit of kind of like, framework so that you have time to input without always having to like be on someone's shoulder so you know when for instance like when it comes to product development like finding times where I can have a download of all my ideas and then they can take them away and and also kind of come with theirs so it's not so again just my my way or the highway and I think second one is probably around just you know I started the business at 24 I didn't really have a career before this I never really knew what leadership was never really had a leader that I followed or worked for that I found really inspiring. So kind of trying to figure out what that meant for me has been like, a, I think a continual journey. And, and I think, you know, I'm probably sit between that kind of extrovert introvert kind of spectrum. I'm not like somebody that stands on a stage and absolutely loves it. Neither am I someone that would say lots of things around like smashing goals and all that kind of language, just not really me. So finding a way to like make sure you feel comfortable in your own skin when you're having to motivate a team is something that I'm constantly trying to make sure that I'm finding me and being authentic with it without trying to like mold into what I think a leader should be. And I think that is a constant kind of <laughs> learning for, for me, at least that you don't need to pretend you, you the best leaders are those that are open and vulnerable and share and say how it is. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the two big things for me. Before we wrap up, I'm interested to know what the what was 2022 got in store. I think I saw you recently launched, I think your second big TV campaign, and I saw your LinkedIn post that kind of had to, had a few things of what you're trying to achieve. But I'd be interested to tell, for you to tell, tell the audience what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of like we've got really great distribution now. We're really established in the UK now, so really driving awareness and building the brand out so that ultimately it supports sales is a big focus. 
like I mentioned it earlier, we're doing a lot of work on sustainability. We're actually going out to California uh, next month to kind of see all of our almond growers and, and connect with them and start to... Rowing there, right? Yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely not flying, obviously. No, no flying there. Hot air balloon, maybe. Hot air balloon. We'll drive a hybrid car for sure when we're, we're driving around California. But it's the first time we've been out to all the farmers and, and hopefully it will also get us to get a bit closer to our supply chain, which is really exciting. Um, and I guess for us at the moment, very much focused on our core where we started our peanut butter market, but looking at how we can broaden the brand. So looking at kind of our stretch into other categories. Again, take what we've done in nut butter, which is, I guess, create products that are really made of real food and not processed and bring that into new spaces where we know we can be relevant yeah that's the big focus at the moment for us awesome and then usually we say you know uh where can people find the brand etc but the answer with you is everywhere so where can people find you instead So me as the person, I'm in London. Um, but yeah, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to get um, them to turn up to your house. I meant on social media. <laughs> not it's okay. my house. On social okay. media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Safety first, Pip. Find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> no, the products. Uh, we're in Sainsbury's, Tesco, Asda, um, as well as places like Whole Foods, um, Holland Barrett, all around the UK. And people can find you on LinkedIn personally, right? And me on LinkedIn, yes, that's correct. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. I enjoyed it. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. So we need to build something which really changes an industry and that we can say this is the company that we're most proud of and that actually can define our whole career. And that was, you know, a big set of pressure to put on ourselves, but we felt like if we're going to do it, let's do it properly. And so we started from what the biggest industries were and what the biggest consumer problems we've had have been over the past 10, 15 years and kept coming back to the car industry for that reason. That was Tom Leeds, the founder and CEO of Motorway, a second-hand car marketplace which recently became a unicorn. He's a serial entrepreneur with several exits under his belt. He's got one of those LinkedIn's you just look at and think, wow. Find out what he's done and the secrets to his success. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.